Africans and African-Europeans are widely believed to be a recent presence in Europe, yet the truth is that people of African origins have shaped the continent and their stories have been deliberately excluded from traditional history. In her landmark book, African-Europeans, An Untold History, Oliver Tatelli uncovers this forgotten past. She sheds light on the old and diverse links between Africa and Europe. She tells the stories of the lives of extraordinary and ordinary African-Europeans, from rulers and intellectuals to slaves and soldiers. Welcome to Afterwards. I'm Kate Williams, historian broadcaster, here today talking with Olivet. We're going to explore some of the illuminating personal stories of African Europeans from her book and discuss the transformative power of this crucial thread in Europe's history. Welcome, Olivet. I am thrilled to be talking to you because this your book, African Europeans, it's absolutely incredible. I'm just looking at these glowing reviews you've got here. Afua Hirsch saying, a book I've been waiting for my whole life. And Bonnie Greer saying, European history itself is not complete without this book. And really, I read this book, I just read it in one sitting the combination of these fantastic lives that you tell us, that you've researched, and also your scholarship, the detail, and how you set this in the wider scholarship of European history, of African history, and really the future of racial integrations, the future of race relations. What you really show us is how much this story of African Europeans has been excluded from traditional histories, how much the history of Europe excludes the histories of those Africans who lived in Europe, but also those Africans in Africa whose lives were shaped by Europeans, by enslavement, by colonialism, by conquer, by trade. And it's been a very long time excluded. And was that what attracted you to write about African Europeans initially, how much they've been excluded from the traditional narrative? This book is has been long coming because it's been a book that I have been wanting to write for many, many years. I was grappling with several issues. The question of erasure, of course, is at the heart of it, absences, and I want to address these absences. But there's also the idea of collaborations that is very, very important to me between people from various cultures, point of meetings, point of collaborations, but point of discussions as well. The other factor that really motivated me was to try and say it as a child of uh, both Africa and Europe. So it's also uh, kind of personal in many ways. So yeah, here it is. And I'm absolutely delighted and, and incredibly surprised as well by the reviews, I have to say. I'm just thrilled that so many people like the book. Now, there are just so many incredible characters in here and incredible stories. And each one of them, I think, could make their own fantastic biopic. And I'm, I'm going to talk about a bit of them in detail. But I think one of my favourites was Joseph Boulogne. Could you talk a little bit about him? Yes. I'm, OK, so I'm very fond of all of them. Joseph is one of them, really, because he is an incredible man. So he was born in Guadeloupe from a nobleman, a white French nobleman, and from an enslaved African from, we think she was from Senegal, nowadays Senegal. And therefore his mother was an enslaved person, but he was 
Manu Mitter and free and freed by his father. But what is special about him is the fact that he was taken to France with his mother. It wasn't usually the case. And his father was completely determined to give him the education of a nobleman. So his father was very wealthy. So he taught him, uh, of course, how to read and write, but he hired the best teachers in the, in the realm, from master fencer to composer to musicians to equestrians, to make his son a gentleman. Uh, in 18th century Paris, you can imagine how hard it was, but more importantly, some doors were open to Joseph that were not open to even uh, white wealthy young men because the young man was incredibly charming in a way that attracted so many people. He was intelligent and he was open to everything, meaning he was open to learning, he was open to engaging. And, you know, that landed him in, in the arms, so to speak, of royalty because he became very close to the court and very close to the Duke of Orléans, one of the king's brothers. But his story is quite tragic in a way because although he had all the privileges, he was still longing to have and to see the end of slavery. So when the, uh, the French Revolution started, he recruited people who looked like him and who were like him to try and fight against, well, his own people, his, the elite, the nobility. That landed him in prison. And eventually when he came out of prison, ill, tired. He resumed his work at the major opera in Paris and he died afterwards, just I think a year after he was released from prison. And the tragic part of this is not even his death, it's the fact that um, Napoleon had by that time reinstated slavery in the colonies and he demanded that all memories and all the work by Joseph Boulogne be erased from the realm. In other words, complete erasure, decision to erase it. And so his story just was forgotten. But of course, you know, African Caribbean have always remembered him because he did and he wrote absolutely outstanding pieces, uh, classical music. And in 2014, he was reinstated by uh, then President Francois Hollande in an incredibly moving ceremony. And that got everybody crying. <laughs> Yeah, that's the story of Joseph. I'm very, very fond of him. And it's really a very tragic story because he was so celebrated and so talented. You write in the book that he almost was considered to be assistant director of the Paris Opera. And, and we think that he was the first French musician to write string quartets. And so someone with that level of elite recognition, and yet Napoleon bans his music and it disappears from the repertoires. Thanks to this aggressive act by Napoleon, he disappears from memory. Yes, absolutely. So it was, you know, sometimes we forget about people because it's just the way it happens. This is what, this was deliberate erasure. Mm. And that is tragic. That is absolutely scandalous, of course, but tragic in, in the sense that he did not recognize the talent of this incredible musician. Um, the other thing that is interesting is that he even, you know, he wrote pieces, he worked with other musicians, uh, Joseph Heindel. He collaborated with musicians across Europe, so it was virtually impossible for people to forget him. But as far as France is concerned, that was the decision that was made. And it seemed to have worked in so many ways. And you write so brilliantly about the relationship between so many European countries and African countries and African people in the book, but particularly 
in terms of Joseph Boulogne, in terms of France and Napoleon and, and the Code Noir and really Napoleon's radical efforts to squash, as with Joseph Boulogne, black history and black lives, really. Yes, Napoleon was, um, we know <laughs> how terrible he was. He's the national hero in France, by the way, still today. But Napoleon's link with the slave trade and the colonies is also very important in that context because he had married uh, Josephine de Beauharnais and Josephine de Beauharnais was indeed the daughter of planters and her, in fact, her whole, the whole dynasty of the Beauharnais had been planters and had owned enslaved people for many, many centuries. So he was not just listening to her, but listening to people around him who had strong interests, trading interests in plantations. And, you know, the decision made was both political and, and personal, of course. But he was also a pragmatist. For example, he celebrated Toussaint Louverture, the Haitian revolutionary, but at the same time recognised that slavery threatened the plantocracy and threatened what he considered to be the most important thing, which was the right to property and the right to own enslaved people. One of the things you show so brilliantly is that very often the European history of the relationship between white people and black people has been schematized in terms of abolitionists, mainly white abolitionists, but some degree of concentration on black abolitionists as well. And as you say here, there's a lack of engagement with rebellion against slavery on plantations, with this constant rebellion in slave ships, Queen Nzinga, and also, you know, these small acts of rebellion that you show so brilliantly throughout the book, people who live in Europe and, and rebel in so many small ways and sort of get their own back and create their own level of self-determination as much as they can. Yes, absolutely. It's a network of abolitionists that are understated and unknown. Resistance took many forms from running away, of course, whether in the plantations or in mainland Paris or Lisbon. It's also about, you know, finding that space of finding those kind of weak points where to press. For example, some would stop working and refuse to work within the household of wealthy merchant or simply disappear for a few days. That was an act of rebellion. It was seen as insubordination, but it was an act of rebellion because those groups of people were not officially or at least before the law enslaved people because slavery was not legal as such in Europe. They were considered to be servants, but they were not. They had a different status than servants, than white servants. So they rebelled as often as they could. An example I found really very striking of what you say, you know, finding these weak points, individuals, was the story of the Portuguese trader Eliar Burgos, who bought a woman called Juliana. And once she gets to Amsterdam, she decides she's going to leave him because she understands that slavery doesn't exist in the city. Yes, it's interesting because this is a young woman who's enslaved, who apparently hasn't got any agency or any rights, but somehow, somewhere, she manages to find the information. So you have a culture of these enslaved people talking amongst themselves, exchanging information and definitely supporting each other into the course of action. It's unlikely that she acted alone. She was advised by other groups of people, and that has been the case actually since the 15th century in Seville, in Lisbon, in other capitals. It's a story of a strong resistance and collaboration that I also wanted to emphasize within the book because it's a long story of resistance 
What I really found incredibly so enlightening and so moving, particularly in the book, was how you write about the dual heritage, about the children, usually of planters and their enslaved, sometimes their enslaved partners or women that they sometimes took as a form of wives or sometimes it was through sexual assault and on the plantations. But how the, the lives of these dual heritage children, they, they really seem to show up, I think, a lot of the sort of worry and ambiguity in Europe about race that we see when these children come on? Are they African or are they French or Dutch or, or Portuguese? That's the thing. It was up to the master, who happened to be the father as well, to decide the status of the children. In some plantations in the Caribbean, it wasn't up to them. It, the law was that they were not. But many of these those fathers, you know, they fathered many children. So they always, some of them had favourites. It would be the favourites who would make it to European scenes. I mentioned very shortly and very briefly Nathaniel Wells. He was one of them as well who was favoured by his father. And within that environment, in that space, you also have women who had to navigate several things. It was incredibly difficult. And I talk about Florio, who was another French planter who brought most of his children to France. And yet, despite his willingness to support them and to help them, the law has hardened. So he couldn't possibly present himself as fully acknowledging their existence, and yet everyone knew that they were there. The really fascinating case study you give us about the Senegal women in Senegal and also the women in Ozu, the Danish go to Ozu and have the fort in Christiansborg and in the Gar women like Lena Kuberg. I mean, these are really fascinating stories in which sometimes to a degree, the white men who marry black women in these places become dependent on, on the black women in a, in a way that actually reveals their weakness. Yes, I wanted to bring some nuances to some of the stories because there's a sense of place. These women are Africans. They're also Europeans because of their fathers, where their fathers are coming from. But they own the place in the sense that they belong to the place. They dictate the terms of the exchange to a certain point and they in some instances, I'm talking about Ghana now, playing around the patriarchal society and Danish rules. In other words, they know that the Danish have got the economic advantage, but at the same time, they also know that they have some freedom because those Danish were not, according to the laws of the land, they were not allowed to live with these women. So they are free, in essence, from the patriarchal African society they lived in. And, and free from those Danish men to a certain extent. But that has limits as well as anything else because they're still the product of several worlds colliding at the same time. But what's fascinating for me was to see the nuances of how those women navigate those questions of race and identity and power. It was very, very important for me to show that they have some kind of agency. And it, that continues right through... You say it's really fascinating when you talk about during the 20th century about the African Europeans who are who really are struggling against and talking about colonialism and the anti-colonial fight and particularly about Tiemco Kuyate. And you say that you know it's been mistakenly interpreted as a peaceful historical moment for anti-colonialist movement. But the African Europeans who were in Europe were constantly under threat of being arrested and police surveillance and violence. Yes, it was 
brutal for them to be living in those spaces because they knew that they were monitored constantly. Uh, there's, of course, suspicion because of the colour of their skin and their descendancy, if you would, their heritage. But the fact that everything was done to prevent them from having economic freedom and access to certain kind of education. So it was fear again that dictated those movements. I mean, Europe by that time has won the economic battle, so to speak. So there was no need to do that. And yet there's this fear that even the small number of, of Africans who were in European settings would challenge the established order and somehow convince the majority of people that did not have access to those means, have access to that amount of money or that kind of money that they too had been used and they too had been lied to by the elite. So constant surveillance, really. And you were saying the special police, when people might want to marry the Europeans and African students, who men and women might want to marry, the special police try and intimidate them to stop the marriage happening. Yes, it's uh, the racial boundaries being blurred again, raises some kind of fear, new fear of those ones. Those ones are educated and those ones, most of them know the story and the history of the past. So uh, on top of being or marrying, they would spread a history that is not written and that they don't want to see shared widely. There's the story of um, Prince Alexander Douala Mangabel and he comes over and there is a you really show that there's a real expectation that he should be grateful. He, he should be strong, have this sense of purpose. And there's a real fear of him as well, isn't there? Yes, it's extraordinary. I found his story absolutely extraordinary. And the lack of kind of psychological literacy is staggering. This is a child who is European. He's a prince and he's enjoyed the perks of the elite of, of being part of that society. And yet, because of his background, his heritage, people are expecting him to behave like an African prince, which he's not. His values are and his culture and his history is that. So he's going to behave just like any other prince who's self-indulgent and who has been spoiled. And that is shocking to them. And you really, in the book, you tell the fascinating story of the sisters, of Paulette Nadal and her sisters, Jane and Andre. And they are fascinating examples of African Europeans, aren't they? Yes, I'm very, very fond of them. I'm fond of them at so many levels because... They are in between us in the sense that the African Europeans, of course, but the Caribbean women as well. So of African descent, but there's a Caribbean identity that is very strong and that is powerful and that needed to come through in the stories um, I was sharing. And so uh, born in Martinique, both of them from very highly educated families, both their mother and father. And then they studied in France and they arrived in France and what they saw was not what they were expecting. They saw people who were expecting black women to behave as exotic creatures and they were not, uh, they were not okay with that. So they decided to set up a magazine and they recruited several people in the sense that it was a very liberal, very open approach. So you have black people, you have white people, people of Asian descent. And this is a point where communities are coming together and they're dismantling those prejudices, not just prejudices, but they sort of dismantling the gaze, the European gaze towards extra Europeans. Um, they're questioning, challenging the idea of a black person or a black man being seen as brute force, 
challenging the idea of women as being black women as being just sexual object. They are doing it so well and so powerfully that they are going to inspire other groups of students, of black students. And among such black students, you have, among many others, uh, Leopold Sedar Senghor, who would set up the movement with two other people, the movement La Negritude. And Senghor is considered to be kind of a father of an African between the war movement. And he later became president of Senegal, the very first president of Senegal. So these women inspired, more than inspired, shaped their intellectual journeys. They were extraordinary. One of the final stories you talk about is Betty Campbell. And I know how important she is to you because she is a Cardiff heroine and you two live in Wales and Wales is so important to you. Yes, Wales is my home, is where my heart is. And and Betty encompasses your typical African Europeans who belong to several spaces, except that she belongs to several spaces, even proud of belonging to several spaces, and who doesn't just sit there and, and say, OK, my life is better. First black teacher, my life was good and this is it. She's giving back to communities. She's given so much back to communities in Cardiff and she's inspired many, many people. It was such a privilege to get to know her and to spend some time with her and to talk and to dance as well. Uh, with her that I wanted to mention this. I wanted people to know more about her and to understand that this idea of resistance collaboration has never ceased. You know, it's the ordinary people. Well, she was not ordinary person, but what I mean is the people who don't make the wider news and who are shaping identities in places and in Wales in particular. There is such a thing, I keep saying to some people, there is such a thing as Black Welsh, you know. <laughs> black Welsh. Well, I'm, yes. And as you were saying, you know, she is, Betty's story is a Black Welsh story, the first black headmistress. And she does so much for the lives of children. She's born in a working class household. She grows up and she does so much for the lives of children, does so much for Wales and an incredibly inspiring story. Yes. And she deserves her place in, in national story because it's not just a regional story. I believe this is a national story. And because she's in this book, I wanted to show that she's a European story. And what you write about so brilliantly is not not just these fantastic stories, and I've learned so much, but also there's wider questions, the theory of racialism and racial difference. And you really track the history of people initially, that the concepts of racial difference, some people in Europe thinking that if they put a black person in Europe, their skin colour will fade, and the development of racialism and the development of attributing certain characteristics to people of colour to black people that really is used to justify the system of slavery. Yes, it was. Again, it's at the basis of all this is the justification. Like many, this is a contested territory because many people are saying, oh, they enslaved Africans because they were inferior. My point is that it was a trade. A justification came afterwards. And that justification really didn't stand the scrutiny of history and biology and all the rest of it. And yet they persisted. So the idea of inferiority had to be explained religiously, scientifically and culturally. And this is what, you know, many Europeans, well, all of them actually, spent centuries trying to do. You know, it's so striking that you show that the black identity is imposed upon by these by these racialized norms which are themselves to justify slavery the white paternalism and how much they shape the white identity as well how much both of them are shaped by this 
effort to justify slavery, which in the end was using people to make money. Yes. A few years back, I wrote something about the, the title was Does Discrimination Shape Identity? Yes, it does for minority groups, but it also does for majority group, because this is why we talk about us and them. And if you talk about us and them, it means that there's an us that needs to be shaped and built up over time. So the, that whole book and that whole history is about the building up of us. And I say us meaning as in Europeans and them, whereas there's no us and them because there are African Europeans ultimately. And so you, the epilogue really brings things right up to the present day, the, right up to the present moment. And across the board, we have the first woman vice president of colour in America with Kamala Harris. Certainly in our area of heritage and academia, there are big efforts being made. You know, so many museums are really thinking about decolonising the horrendous death of, of George Floyd has really created a worldwide conversation. And do you see hope in that, that this is going to continue? Yes, I see hope in that. I see this as a catalyst. I know many people are saying there have been many catalysts. Um, but when you study the long history, very long history, as we've, we've been through now, 20 centuries in one book, you see there are changes. Of course, racism takes many forms and shifts as well and is not disappearing. And some people will argue that it's more violent. I don't know. If it's more violent, it hasn't disappeared, that's for sure. But I see incredible hope. I see incredible hope in my students who are fighting for stories that are not necessarily at first glance theirs, and yet they see those stories as theirs. I see young white people that I teach who are very much against all forms of discrimination, sexism and racism and all the rest of them. And they will fight quite fiercely to end this and they will challenge anybody who does. So that gives me incredible, incredible hope. I'm quite a hopeful person anyway, but this is another layer of, of the fight that I did not anticipate that I saw when after the killing of George Floyd and the demonstrations and the movement continues as well. And I'm loving it. I have one one last question. So every Afterwards podcast finishes by asking the guest, asking you about one text, a film or book or otherwise, that influenced this book, that influenced African-Europeans. So, Olivet, what is yours? It's more to do with not so much the text, but the people and their way of doing history. So there's Strabo, the Greek geographer, that I really am really fond of because of the way he narrates, because of the fact that he mentioned people of African descent and he mentioned the Romans. And this is very important to me. That, that was the start of a conversation that I had about where to start the book. And I wanted to start well, I didn't start completely with him, but I want to have him included. There's, of course, Shikanta Diop, historian and physicist, who completely shaped my views because he's the one who challenged the idea that Egyptians might not have been all white. <laughs> the African descent or the African side of the black side of Egypt. And he was also challenged for writing what he wrote. My book was set to be Afrocentric and, well, it's building on the work of Shikanta Diop. I had to give him credit for that. The last person is Mark Bloch. Okay, he might not look like he had much influence on my writing, 
But this is a man I admire from the earth to the moon because of the way he did history is the comparative history. Looking at all aspect of history of one topic and really turning it 360 and challenging even what you just wrote. Well, Olivet, it's been an incredible pleasure talking to you. Such an honour. I'm the biggest fan of this book. It's absolutely brilliant book. And just as Bonnie Greer was saying, you cannot have European history without this book. Thank you so very much for having me. Afterwards is produced by George McDonough. Thank you to Olivet for taking part in this wonderful episode. You can buy African Europeans now from the Hearst Publishers website and from all good bookshops and go out and snap it up because it's just brilliant. For more on Twitter, follow Hearst at Hearst Publishers and follow Olivet, Olivet Otelli. And to get news on the latest Hearst books, subscribe to their email updates at hearstpublishers.com. I'm Kate Williams. Thank you so much for listening.